Um, let's turn to, the, turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for waking us up into another day. We thank you, Lord God, for our salvation. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for our sins and dying on the cross. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for his resurrection and him sitting at the right hand of the Father at this time to intercede. We call on you, call on the name of Jesus Christ as the intercessor to guide us this day, that our minds stay centered on you, Lord God, that what we hear and are taught today, Lord God, may seep into our hearts, Lord, in those places that need you even more, Father. And we pray, Father God, that you will bless Brother Rick Faison in a special way, that what he, he brings forth to us, Lord God, will be enlightened by, by the Holy Spirit in a special way, that that spirit that penetrates each and every one of our hearts, Lord God, will bring something new to us that we need, Lord, that you, want, that you need for us to use in your kingdom-building process. And we thank you. We thank you for these weeks and this month, Lord God, that missionaries have come and shared with us, Lord, that we may grow as a church and as a ministry, that you be glorified and we become even more sanctified. And we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray with thanksgiving. Amen. I'm going to read a bio, a bio on uh, Brother Rick Fa Reverend Rick Faison. Reverend Rick Faison has been has been saved for 43 years and loves the Lord, his word, and serving God's people. He is a highly decorated retired veteran of the Pennsylvania Air National Guard 111th Fighter Wing Command Post. Rick's distinguished career as a citizen soldier includes being Airman of the Year twice, the recipient of the Meritorious Service Ribbon three times, plus the recipient of the Air Force Achievement Medal. Rick, Rick has received citations from the Adjutant General of the State of Pennsylvania and the government of Kuwait. Rick served his country as a non-commissioned officer in charge of training here in the United States and as air operations specialist in Germany, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, during Desert Storm and Operation Southern Watch. Rick is the former director of enrollment management, director of the counseling ministry, and an adjunct faculty instructor for the Geneva College of Philadelphia campus. Center for Urban Theological Studies, Rick, Rick is a graduate of Geneva College at Cuts, where he received his bachelor's of, bachelor's of science degree in urban ministry leadership. Graduating with highest distinction and receiving the highest honors for his educational research project in creation science. Rick currently serves the Lancaster Bible College I Lead program, the New Life Bible Institute and Missionary Training School of Beulah Baptist Church, and Church Bible Institute at Christian Stronghold Baptist Church as an instructor. Rick is a, a 2010 graduate of the National Aeronautics Space Administration, that's NASA, Space Academy for Educators at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. He is also a 2012 member of the eight-day Grand Canyon Wilderness Study Expedition for International Christian Leaders. 
Rick, Rick is president and co-founder of the Philadelphia Society of Creation Science, that's PSCS Ministries, is a ministry partner of Answers in Genesis Ministries. Rick served two terms as president of the board of directors for Timothy Academy. He is a founder, board member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, as well as a member of the Philadelphia Association of Christian Schools. Rick is the charter member of the National Biblical Counselors Association. He has served his local community as chairman of the board of directors for the Olive Community Improvement Association. Rick is a national and international seminar speaker on creation science and STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. He is a biblical counselor, Sunday school teacher, and former superintendent. Rick is a member of the Christian Stronghold of is a member of Christian Stronghold Church of Philadelphia Mighty Men Hall of Fame. Rick has given leadership to numerous organizations, including Director of Congressional, Congressional Relations at Bethany Christian Services, the Director of Say, the Director of Say Yes, a ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. Rick is currently working on the book, on the book about the wisdom of Genesis chapters, one through twelve. Rick has written curriculum for creation seminars, which may be produced in local church Bible institutes. He writes articles on global apologetics, on global apologetics ministry on Facebook called The Defenders. Rick is married to Vicki Faison, vice president and co-founder of PSCS Ministries. They are the parents of three adult children, Bobby, Sam, and Elena, and, and a daughter-in-law Rhonda, and three grandchildren, Christopher, Christian, and Christy. We want to thank God. <clears throat> we want to thank God this morning for um, Rick Faison, and I'd like to introduce a friend of mine and a person I really have a lot of respect for and I've watched for years as he has um, mentored and discipled others, including myself. I introduce Rick Faison. Thank you, sir. Praise God. Well, how in the world are you this morning? Amen, amen. Just so you know ahead of time, this is not going to be a typical lecture scenario. Hey, Stronghold in the house. Good to see you. Thank you so very much for coming. This is going to be interactive. I'm going to be walking up and down the aisles. Now, I'm not going to be like Satan looking to see whom I can devour, but I am going to be all in your midst. So you need to keep your thinking caps on as we progress our way through today's presentation. Equipping you to defend what you believe is part of the teaching mandate that God has given to all of us. And it is extremely important. And you're going to see in just a few moments that you are equipped to defend your faith. Because you don't have a blind faith it is a reasonable, rational faith in which you stand on. So, I just want you to know that the living God, do you have a living God, by the way? Amen, amen, is a missionary God. And because he is a missionary God, he has some intentional purposes. One is to fight against evil. That's going to be his kingdom victory. Even though you may see a lot of chaos in the world right now, I need to encourage you. He is actively, 
not only restraining, but fighting evil. There's his intentions for the nations, where they would have redemption as well as blessings. Then there's also for God himself, and that's his global glory. Can you say it's the story of his glory? It most certainly is. John Piper, who's now retired, former pastor, said, missions exist because worship doesn't. You need to marinate on that for just a moment. Missions exist because worship doesn't, because there's millions upon millions of people who are not worshiping the living God. That's part of what our mandate is. So if you were to look at some of the scriptures surrounding that, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth. Kingdom victory. His purpose is being fulfilled, and it will be completely fulfilled in the fullness of time. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Can you say earth? Will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's from Habakkuk 2.14. That's his passion. It is part of the story of his glory. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every people group. It says in Acts 17, 26, that he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-apportioned or pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Biblical anthropology is tribes, tongues, nations, people groups. I hate to break this to you, but there's no such thing as Caucasian, Negroid, Mongoloid, or Australioid. Those are made-up terms because they were commissioned. Sociologists were commissioned by the British Crown to give a reason for their imperial mandates going around colonizing. That's the popular word from Wakanda today. <laughs> Being colonizers... So they needed a justification. But God said he has made from one blood. The science of genetics actually supports that. There's a 0.02% difference between any human being on the planet. I'll say that again so it sinks in real good. 0.02% difference. That's infinitesimal. Okay? So... One blood, all of mankind. And we're going to get to that because racism is a serious issue today. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory. Once again, the story of his glory forever. Anybody can tell me who the him is in this particular scripture. Okay, it is God. Give me a personal name. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Let me help you out here. Although all three of the Godhead 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost are involved in creation. The primary agent of creation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Time and time again, Scripture states that specifically. And once you let that sink in and you marinate on that a little bit, you begin to give him more glory. Because he is so much more than just your deliverer, your redeemer, your savior. He is the creator. Let me give it to you this way. How many of you went to sleep last night? Would that be just about everybody? Okay. How many of you had dreams last night? I was all over the place. But you did wake up because you're here. That's because God has designed in you an autonomic nervous system that allows you to still function while you are recuperating and recovering from the massively hard day you had on Saturday. That's by design. And it goes even better than that. It says in Colossians that he holds all things together by his power. Think about this. I'll give you a little science here. You know what an atom is, right? Okay. And in the nucleus of your atom, you have protons and neutrons, right? You know, protons are positively charged, right? Now, when you were little kids and used to play with magnets and you tried to put a north to north, what would it do? It would repel, right? So why is it that the positive protons in your nucleus of your atoms aren't repelling each other and blowing you apart? That's right. Jesus is holding you together at the subatomic level. Can I get an amen? All right. (laughs) I just want you to know that it didn't start with the Great Commission. It's an ancient mandate. Can you say ancient? Can you say mandate? It was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Let's see what the scripture itself says. Now the Lord, can you say Lord? Just want to make sure you know he got his commands from the, the command. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country. Pack your bags, son. You're going somewhere. From your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. Watch this now. And I will curse those or curse him who curses you and in you. All the families of the earth. Can you say all? Can you say families? Of the earth shall be blessed. That's a fivefold promise to Abram. Make of you a great nation. Bless or empower you. Make your name great. Bless the curse of nations who deal with you and your offspring. And a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, you've already seen that all the families of the earth include every tribe every tongue, every nation, every people group. There is nobody excluded from this ancient mandate that Abram and his descendants were supposed to be influencing. Abram and his his offspring are brought into partnership. Can you say partnership? Partnership. No, no, no. You got to say like you mean it, like you want to be a partner with God. Say partnership. partnership. Now you're on to something. With God and his plan and purposes. Unfortunately, they failed abysmally. God brings you and I, the redeemed. Can you say, I am redeemed? redeemed. Born again Gentiles, the 
wild olive branch, you know that from Romans, that has been grafted in to participate with God's global mission of redemption and worship and glory with the Great Commission. Now, you need to understand, if you're a little confused about why things are the way they are, God's mission work is under siege. In Genesis 1 to 11, you have the setup that affects you and I right here in 2018. You have the fall, the flood, and the flop. Can you say flop? Genesis 3, 4, and 5, the temple of man is defiled. Adam sins. He's the federal headship of the entire human race. So you have the fall and its terrible, terrible consequences. Six through ten, all of humanity is defiled, including nature. And its terrible consequences, the flood. It's been estimated that we're probably about a million and a half, two million people alive at the time of the flood. I want you to think about this. Let's sink in. Only eight out of two million people made it through. My, my. Chapter 11, worship is defiled. The ziggurat, which you know is the tower, the ziggurat of Babel, and the dispersion, that's the flock. So we've got, unfortunately, a pretty dismal track record here. But you need to get it straight so you understand why things are the way they are right now. The ancient mandate, of course, is continued in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, I almost got Pentecostal and said Holy Ghost. But okay, if I go for Holy Ghost, all right with you? Okay. We'll make it Baptocostal. <laughs> Teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can you say amen? amen. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. The goal of Matthew 28, 19 through 20? For the Lord Jesus Christ is all about transformation. He's trying to transform sinners, watch this, into his very image. Because once you get saved, that's the goal, that you be transformed into God the Father's beloved Son, into his image, so that you have the mind of Christ, so that the words that come out your mouth, which were really formated in your heart, are godly or holy. Can you say holy? Can you say, I want to be holy? Amen. It's all about transformation. In that great commission, it says, not force people to become disciples, not teach people how to become disciples. It says, go and make disciples. And you say, well, like, what, are you playing somatics here? I mean, no, I'm not. It said, go and make. Now, I'm not going to get all deep into the Greek meaning of the word there, but it means this. When you go out and share your faith with every tribe, tongue, nation, people group, when they bow the knee of their heart, repent of their sins, ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, they begin the transformation process. That's making a disciple because they're going to be following. They're followers of Jesus. They are imitators of Jesus who is the Christ. It says, not force them to obey, teach them to obey. How many of you have children? Raise your hand. That's just about everybody here, right? 
Now, I realize you're parents. And if you say, go pick out, take out the trash, take out the garbage, you got to do that, right? Okay. Do they like doing that? No. When, you, when they be bad and you got to take their electronic devices away from them and they get the poochie lip, do you think they like that? No. But you're teaching them to obey. You want to know why? Because it's a transformative process. It's one thing to, it's one thing to know something intellectually in your head, or as we like to say, academically. It's another thing for it to be settled in your heart. It's like this, sir. You know academically and intellectually it is forbidden. It is wrong. It is a perversion for you to commit adultery, considering you're married. You've got a wedding band on, right? Okay. <laughs> it's just an example. So the point here is, you know, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you're already committed adultery, right? It's a lust in your where? Didn't say a lust in your head, did it? Because you already know what the doctrine is. But unless it's transformative in your heart, you will never willingly obey it. Mm, can I get an amen? <laughs> it's transformative. You teach people how to go from here to here. Amen? Now we're on to something. Making the connection between the head and the heart for real transformation. So you want to take that strategic evangelism and make it transformative. You want to become a 1 Peter 3.15 Christian. Why don't you repeat this with me? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. First of all, you want to sanctify. That means set apart the Lord God in your hearts. Where? Does it say head? No, because it's transformative. You live here. This little muscle, okay? Well, you don't really live out of that muscle except for your blood. But this is where you live, your heart. Amen? So it says, set apart the Lord God in your heart. And how often? See, y'all weak on that. Sometimes? Frequently? Oh, okay, y'all got it then. Be ready to give a defense. That's the word apology. It's where we get the word apologetics from. It's where we all get the word apology from. You are to always be ready to give an apologetic for the reason of the hope that is within you. Now, I would, be, but I can't because we're like, we got this time frame we got to operate in today. The hope that is in you is Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope is in you that you're going to get a brand new body, sis. No more glasses. No more needs to sound like Rice Krispies early in the morning. I'm just saying. Just saying. All right? The hope that is in you. When you live this life transformatively, people want to know. They'll come to you, ask you for prayer. All right? Even if they're your enemy. That's how God works this. And the way, the attitude that you do it, 
is with humbleness and reverence. Okay? Not to get a haughty attitude like, now you suck your teeth and roll your eyes and throw the hand on the hip. Of course, I don't throw my hand on my hip, but that's neither here nor there. But you get my point. Don't be having no attitude when it comes to giving an apologetic. Like, how come you don't know? Well, if they knew, they wouldn't be asking you. Yeah. Amen? Let's make it plain here. So, today's culture, 2018. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, that's appetites and desires, and say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Scoffers, mockers, and critics, they abound. They dominate the educational system. They dominate the media. And they are busting up on biblical Christianity left and right. When your kids are down and you're watching National Geographic, the Learning Channel, the History Channel, NOVA, PBS, all those channels that purport the Discovery Channel and its family of Discovery Stations, when they sit down and watch stuff, it says, you were a descendant of an ape, or it took millions and billions of years for you to get here, and really you're just an evolved animal, you need to be able to refute that biblically as well as scientifically. So, we need to start off with answering those scoffers, mockers, and critics, understanding why evolution and naturalism lacks scientific credibility. Can you say lack? It ain't got none. You hear this one a lot. Science has proven evolution, therefore evolution is true. Since evolution is true and Christians don't believe it, then Christians don't believe science and they aren't rational people. Really, let's put that claim to the test. First off, evolution in the sense that things change is evident. No rational person disputes that. Therefore, rational Christians believe it. We can observe change. But evolution in the sense that life came from non-life and then that life began to randomly generate new genetic information and over time it eventually produced humans is something entirely different and something that quite honestly doesn't hold up against science. In other words, evolution in the sense of molecules to man is not scientifically plausible and therefore should not be viewed as scientific fact. Quite honestly, it is in great opposition to science, that is, observational science, the kind of science we can test and repeat and use our five senses to understand. Science demonstrates that over time, living organisms lose genetic information. They don't gain it. That same science demonstrates that life doesn't arise from non-life. Hey, Follow along from? if you would. Fact one, there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. None. That pretty much refutes evolution right away because there's no way to go from a fish to an amphibian without adding new information, right? If living organisms cannot produce new genetic information, how can anything gradually change into something of higher intelligence or form or complexity? That is, how can anything evolve from an amoeba to a man without adding new genetic information? The answer, of course, is that it can't, plain and simple. Now, some have speculated and they have imagined all kinds of things and they brought in artists to produce creative renderings based on guesses and they have been successful in telling a very convincing story that humans evolved from ape-like creatures, but 
Those are just drawings, people. They're just stories. But what we really observe is humans are humans and apes are apes. Now, if fact one buried evolutionary thinking deep into the Precambrian soil, this next fact, fact two, tosses so much sediment on it that not even the greatest team of paleontologists with the latest subterranean gizmo could dig up the remains. Check this out. Never. Again, never has it been observed that life can come from non-life. So here are two major scientific evidences against evolution. I reiterate for clarity, life has never been observed to come from non-life, and there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to the genetic code of an organism. So molecules demand evolution doesn't really make scientific sense. Yet we are all here, and life is all around us in various forms. Although evolution cannot account for this, the Bible can. The Bible reveals that the all-powerful, all-knowing, supernatural God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and all life according to its kinds, that is, each with its own set of genetic information. So, again, what the Bible reveals makes sense of what we see and understand. Evolution does not. Enough said. <laughs> now, typically when I'm doing this from middle school, high school, and even some college, when they get to that enough said, you get to say, enough said. You need to do it with a little Philly attitude. Enough said. There you go. Let me repeat. Never, ever, ever has any life been observed to come from non-life. And matter does not create new genetic information. To go from A to B, you've got to add genetic information. Not only that, you have to have new mechanisms to make the new information work. So it's a double negative, and it has never, ever been observed to have happened. Contrary to popular belief, the Word of God contains a lot about science. It absolutely talks about geology. Despite what Kyrie Irving may think, he's the basketball player for the Boston Celtics who said the earth is flat, because y'all looked at me like he didn't know who he was. That's Kyrie Irving. The earth is round. And gravitation and glacial periods, Job 38, Job 26, Isaiah 40, biology. Biogenesis and stability in Genesis 111, 21, and 25. Blood circulation in Leviticus. Typically, when I'm with middle schoolers, I ask them something about the Twilight series, like, do you believe in vampires and werewolves? Because it's huge, well, at least it used to be huge, to a person. They all raised their hand. Well, yeah. In fact, one of them asked me whose side I was on. They were like, Reverend Face, are you with the vampires or are you with the werewolves? I was like, I'm with God. <laughs> but nevertheless, sir, you do know that it's just pure fiction. Because everything produces after its kind. There's great variety within a kind, but it stays within the kind. You know, big dogs, small dogs, hairy dogs, naked dogs. Same thing with cats. Big cats, domestic cats, wild cats of all sizes and shapes, but they're still cats. Has anybody ever seen a cog or a dat? That's a dog cat, cog, dat. Okay, y'all get that at 2 o'clock this morning. Astronomy, the uniqueness of each star. Now, you've got to understand, this is written thousands of years before there's a Hubble or a Spitzer or a Kepler telescope. All right? And God said... Each star is unique, okay? The precision of the orbits, because you know we have yellow stars, white stars, brown stars, blue stars, giant red stars of all different magnitudes and type. And the word of God already said that was there. The precision of our orbits, 
anthropology, the study of mankind, the nature of man, Psalm 8. We are made in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1.26. I cannot emphasize that enough. It's a double positive in the Hebrew. Image and likeness. That means we have an intellect. It means we have a will. It means we have emotion, just like our creator God. Amen? And all of us have the three big O's, you know, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. Despite what Marvel Cinematic Universe may say, we don't have that. Okay? But, believe it or not, because you have the indwelling presence of the living God in the form of God, the Holy Ghost, you have dunamis, that's power, Kratos, that's authoritative power. You've got ictos, that's ability power. You've got energia. That's where the energizer bunny gets his thing from. You have energy power. Four distinct powers that the Holy Ghost gives you who dwells within you. So guess what? I'm already a superhero. Archaeology, the flood and fossils, ancient ruins like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the nature of science is like this. Observational science, this is what you can observe, test, repeat, make predictions, and create things. Everybody say with me, empirical. empirical. That's what empirical science is, what you can observe, test, repeat, and make predictions. Historical science is what we infer about the past. Let's look at the clip. Have you ever heard this? Billions of years ago, there was an explosion in space. Or 100,000 years ago, this happened or that happened. Or even in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Question, how does anyone know? I mean, was anybody there to observe it? Well, actually, somebody was, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Check this out. First of all, we need to recognize that there is a huge difference between observational science and historical science. Both are valuable, but very different. Let's define the two real quick, shall we? Observational science is simply when we observe something and experiment to draw conclusions. It involves repeatable experimentation and observations in the present. It's through observational science that we find cures for diseases and build space shuttles, stuff like that. Now, through historical science, we consider things that happened in the past, but they cannot be checked in the same way. I mean, we don't have access to the past like we do the present because, well, it's gone, right? All we really have is speculation, or at best, circumstantial evidences of past events based on what we see in the present. That's not to say that we can't make intelligent guesses about the past or form reasonable inferences from rocks or fossils in the present, but we certainly cannot directly test our conclusions because we cannot repeat the past. Got it? So, does that mean historical science is unimportant? Not at all. Let's drop an example down here for a minute and take a look at the Eiffel Tower. You know, that 19th century Parisian monument designed by Gustave Eiffel that stands 1,063 feet tall, which was built as the entrance for the 1889 World's Fair and is still the tallest building in Paris today visited by millions of people each year? Yeah, that one. Well, guess what? Everything I just told you is true, but how do we test it? Well, applying observational science, we can, of course, observe the Eiffel Tower anytime we're in Paris. It's here in the present. Then, we can continue by testing the height and comparing it to all the other structures in Paris and confirm the claim that it is indeed the tallest building in Paris. But that's the extent of the kind of facts that can be proved by observational science in reference to this claim. How do we really know that Gustav designed it? How do we really know it was built in the 19th century as an entrance to the 1889 World's Fair? 
How do we really know how many people visited? That's all in the past. It can't be repeated. For that kind of information, we need to go outside the limits of observational science and discover what has been communicated to us through historical documents and eyewitness accounts. And furthermore, we have to believe those eyewitnesses and documents are trustworthy. The same is true when we talk about the origin of the Earth. The Earth is here. We all agree with that. So, does observational science confirm that the world was created by God, and are there trustworthy documents and eyewitness accounts that confirm it? Well, let's take the last part first. In short, what we're really asking is my original question, was anybody there to observe it? The answer is yes. God was there, and he told us how he created. He inspired people to write down his very words that became books that were compiled into a complete book called the Bible, which has been verified over and over again and has demonstrated itself to be totally trustworthy in all it claims and teaches. Even secular scholars will concede that the Bible accurately records historical events. Anyway, we have the most trustworthy revelation from the most trustworthy eyewitness. Now, what about observational science? Does it confirm the Bible? Yes. And what's extremely important to realize is the observable fact that the universe is logical and orderly. That makes sense only if its creator is logical and has imposed order on his creation. It doesn't make sense at all if the universe is just an accident of a huge explosion. Also, our minds are able to comprehend many things about the universe, and that's only possible if the creator of the mind gave us the ability and desire to explore the universe. It doesn't make sense if our brains are byproducts of chance because we couldn't trust their conclusions to ever be accurate. And lastly, it only makes sense that we can observe and repeat an experiment if the universe consistently obeys the same laws from day to day, which only makes sense if a lawgiver created it that way and upholds it. So to be bluntly honest, science itself, whether observational or historical, is only possible because God exists and the Bible is true. I could go on, but enough said. So, God was there in the beginning. And God has given us his reliable document, the Bible, that explains all that he did in creation. That document, I want to emphasize again, is reliable and without error. And oh, by the way, science happens to agree with it. In other words, God's word is true. Can you say true? In everything that it says. It's got prophecies that are fulfilled. It's got science that is confirmed. It's got History that is confirmed. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren, there is no other document on the planet that can match up to that, where you've got fulfilled prophecy, history, and science. I dare you to go find one, whether it's with the Hindus, whether it's with the Muslims. I D-double dog dare you to go find something that matches up to the inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God. Because it's inspired, that means it's God-breathed. In fact, it's exhaled by God into the various writers of his holy word. It is authoritative. Can you say authoritative? authoritative. It is inerrant. Can you say inerrant? inerrant. Can you say infallible? infallible? In other words, it never, ever, ever fail. It is your standard of truth. Can you say Amen. No, yeah, I say that good. Say it with me. It is, it is my, standard. my standard. Now you ain't say it with attitude. It is, it is my, standard. my standard. There you go. Now you're back on the corner. <laughs> it is my standard of truth. So what about pain and suffering? Because there's a lot of that in the world, amen? 
when someone challenges you or the kids say get all up in your grill about the character of God, well, if your God is such a good God, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Well, what do you say? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. You hear these statements a lot. Every day something tragic happens. A child dies. Cancer takes another life. An earthquake kills thousands. It forces people to ask the question, if God is loving and merciful, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Well, that's a good question. And thankfully, the Bible sheds a lot of light on this subject. Check this out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the declaration of the very first verse in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. The next couple of chapters explain in broad terms what God made over the course of the six literal days he used to complete his creation. Light, the sky, plants, animals, and humans. That's right. God created everything, and according to Genesis 131, he saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. That is, it was complete and perfect. There was no death and no suffering. There was no survival of the fittest. Animals didn't attack and eat each other. Adam and Eve, the first two humans, did not kill animals for food. Genesis 1:29 through 30 makes it clear that man and animals ate only fruits and vegetables. So the original creation was wonderful, peaceful, without death, full of life and joy, and all enjoying the presence of God, the Creator. So what in the world happened? How did we get from there to here? Well, something drastic must have happened that altered the original creation, and that something was sin. Remember, God created a perfect world and placed Adam and Eve in paradise. As their creator, he had authority over them, and in his authority, God gave them a rule. In Genesis 2.17, God said, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Well, Adam and Eve heard the rule loud and clear, but they willfully disobeyed it. They ate from the tree God told them not to. They chose to live by their rules and separate themselves from God. So the Creator kept his promise that punishment would follow their disobedience. With the rebellious act of one man, sin entered God's creation and death along with it. But the effects of sin didn't stop there, because God had given dominion over all of creation to man in a very real sense. The sin of man affected all of creation. In Genesis 3, we see the beginning of a cursed creation. Thorns and thistles were now part of the world, as well as pain and suffering and death. The world was no longer perfect. It was sin-cursed. And that's why tragic things still happen today. And before we give Adam and Eve the full rap, we have to realize that all of us still willfully sin against God. That should make us really pause and think. But for now, at least on this topic, enough said. Mm. So, man's actions, sin, produces death. It can't get any simpler than that. And because of that, we messed up. But God has provided the answer. And we need to repent and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. Typically, when I'm doing middle school and high school, this is where I go for a salvation decision. Because they've clearly seen, clearly seen, that their sin has separated them from their God. And then we, go, we use the numbers. Everybody say numbers. I usually ask them how old they are. They don't give me any range. I said, okay, would you agree with me that from the age of five, you've probably committed five sins a day? Just five, of course, is ridiculously low. But they go, okay, yeah, I can go over that. I go, that's in thought, word, or deed. So let's multiply five times 365. So let's say I'm with high schoolers who are like, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. From the age of five to where they are now, you take 365 times what, 12, 13. It's in the thousands, right? You could have pulled out your smartphones and did the calculation. But it's in the thousands. So then I ask them a very easy question. Have you done more righteous things than you've done wrong? And they go, no. 
then I guess you need a Savior. I run the numbers with them. Because you can't refute the numbers, amen? I suggest you use that. I have yet to have anybody say to me that their righteousness outweighed their unrighteousness. Because it is impossible. So that's where I go. Well, if you know you cannot save yourself and your sins way outweigh your little righteous deeds, which are like filthy rags anyway, you need a savior, don't you? Most of their hands usually rise up. So, all right. Well, if you're willing to repent, that's turn from your sinful ways and cry out, Lord, save me. He'll do that right now. How many of you, that's the desire of your heart. You want to be saved. You don't want to spend an eternity in a lake of fire because you understand Hades gets let out. You go before a great white throne judgment seat, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life is open, and you're not in it. Therefore, your destiny is a lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and the torment and the smoke go up. I can't think of a worse place. Is that where you want to go? If that's where you want to go, raise your hand. Obviously, nobody raises their hand. Okay, well, then I want you to bow your head. If you mean business with God, God, I mean business with you. Let me lead you in a salvation prayer. Then let me ask you a question. Are you saved? Is everybody here sure of their salvation? Or are you just being religious? Here's what we're going to do. Every head bowed, every eye closed. See, this is going to take the cheat out of it. Well, nobody really knows. Be looking around but me and God. If you know that you've never been born again, you never repented of your sins, you never asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, it would be my sincere privilege to lead you in the salvation prayer. Is that the desire of anybody's heart here? Young, old, whatever? Okay. So by your testimony of an unraised hand, everybody here saying that they're born again and they're saved. Okay. Everybody can look up now. I'm going to be looking for the fruit in your life. Because you'll never know when I'm going to show up in your life. <laughs> you be in Walmart. Oh, man, there's Reverend Faison. You be in TGIF Friday. You be like, oh, man, here he is again. You'll never know when I'm going to show up in your world. But it's still the Holy Ghost is there. God is seeing it. Amen? He know. Don't be playing with this. Your eternal destiny rests on your informed decision. So what about all those millions of years? Radiometric dating, how does that really work? Because every time you turn around, somebody say, oh, yeah, you know, radioactive dating, this, that, and the other. Well, let's find out. Nearly every textbook in science magazine teaches that the Earth is billions of years old, and the primary dating method used for determining this is what is called radioisotope dating, or radiometric dating. Now this is a reliable method for measuring absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth, right? Huh. First off, many scientists now regard the age of the Earth to be between 4.55 and 4.6 billion years old. Okay, so if this method is reliable and accurate, why the 50 million year discrepancy? That seems like a lot. But let's get into some details here and see what's going on. Keep in mind that there's all kinds of scientific jargon on this topic, and so we'll just present a very straightforward, simplified version of the process. Radiometric dating is the process of estimating the ages of rocks based on the decay of radioactive elements in them. Basically, there are certain kinds of atoms in nature that are unstable and spontaneously decay into other kinds of atoms. For instance, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps until it becomes the stable element called lead. 
The original element is called the parent element, and the end result is called the daughter element. Radioisotope dating is commonly used to date igneous rocks, rocks which formed when hot molten material cooled and solidified. The dating clock started when the rock cooled. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intense heat forced any gaseous daughter elements to escape. It is assumed that once the rock cooled, no more atoms escaped, and any daughter element now found in the rock is a result of radioactive decay since that rock formed. The decay rate is measured in terms of half-life. That is, the length of time it takes half of the remaining atoms of a radioactive parent element to decay. Now, of course, that can be measured in a laboratory, and it is assumed that since we know the decay rate, we can calculate backwards and come up with the age of the rock. But is that all there is to it? Here's where it gets tricky. It's true we can measure a decay rate using observational science, but there's another kind of science that is required to accurately calculate dates for rocks, and that is what we call historical science. Historical science deals with the things in the past, and therefore it cannot be repeated and tested. Dating methods require both types of science, because in order to get accurate rock dates, one would have to accurately know both the decay rate and the initial conditions of the rock sample, right? Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the ages of rocks. There are assumptions involved. For instance, how do we know what the initial conditions were in the rock sample? How do we know the amounts of parent or daughter elements now in that sample haven't been altered by other processes in the past? How does someone know the decay rate has remained constant since the rock formed? The answer is, they don't. Let's simplify here and talk about a typical hourglass. Let's say you walk into a room and you see an hourglass with sand at the top and sand at the bottom, and some sand sprinkling from the top chamber to the bottom. Well, observational science would allow us to see and measure the sand, and then calculate how long the hourglass has been running, right? We could make our sand measurements and then calculate when the hourglass was turned over, right? Well, those calculations could be wrong because we may have failed to consider some major assumptions. Like, was there any sand at the bottom when the hourglass was turned over? Has any sand been added or taken out of the hourglass? Has the sand always been falling at a constant rate? Since we did not observe the initial conditions when the hourglass started, and we haven't been watching the sand all the time since then, we must make assumptions. All three of those assumptions can affect our time calculations. Now, of course, there's more to understanding all of this, but enough said. Very simply, it's not accurate. Mount St. Helens exploded in 1980. They measured the radioactive results of that, and they got that the age of the rocks that came out of that volcanic explosion in 1980 were 200 to 250,000 years old. Hmm, I think there's a problem there, Virginia. Not, not this Virginia, but Virginia in general. Okay, so here's what we're going to do because we have to operate within the time constraints that we have, we're gonna use this particular clip as our last clip of the day. However, we have available for you what we call a foundation series. This particular PowerPoint and nine others, astronomy, black history, Genesis 1 to 11, we have them available on PowerPoint out on our display table and you can purchase them from Sister Faison when we're done after we do our question and answer. What about the issue of racism? Let me say this to you, can you say sin? sin. Not, skin. not skin. It is an issue of sin, not skin. It plagues all of mankind, it's used to justify cruelty and bigotry. It is a result of sinful arrogance. So what's the Bible solution to this mess? How many races are there? Y'all been studying, huh? You're right, there is just one.
I hear this one a lot. How can there be so many races in the world if we are all descendants of Adam and Eve? Well, check this out. First off, let's talk about the word race. Sometimes when people use the word, they mean supposed races of people who have evolved at different times, rates, and in different locations. That's not true. Of course, the word race is also a term we use to distinguish between groups with different physical traits, namely skin color. But are there really different races? Take a gander at Acts 17.26, where it is written that God, from one man, made every nation of men. It's clear then that the Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. Check Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Easy enough. God created two people in his image, male and female, and told them to increase in number. So Adam and Eve are mom and dad of the human race. Then their children had children, and those children had children, and so on and so forth for many generations until, according to Genesis 6, 9, the world's population was reduced to eight people who were protected inside an ark during a global flood. And those eight people later walked off the ark, and according to Genesis 9:19, from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Oh, wait a second. What do I mean scattered? Well, jump over to Genesis 11, and let's talk about an event known as the Tower of Babel. Basically, because of the sinful actions of the descendants of Noah, the Lord confused their language and scattered them from there over all the earth. That's pretty clear and concise. Okay, so we've got lots of people who are descendants of the eight folks who came off the ark, and now they have been scattered all over the earth. That explains that we are still one race and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. But how do we get a bunch of different colored people if we are all one race? Well, follow along. This, of course, is a simplified explanation, but the basic principles are true. We all have a pigment in our bodies called melanin, which, depending on different variables, produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess. Several genes control the amount of melanin produced and thus the variability in the skin shade. In fact, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation, as we'll see in just a moment. Time for a quick genetics lesson. DNA is the molecule of heredity that is passed from parents to children. A child inherits 23 chromosomes from each parent. Each chromosome pair contains hundreds of genes which regulate the physical development of the child. However, to illustrate basic genetic principles pertaining to the topic, we'll just talk about two genes, the genes that control the production of melanin. So let capital A and capital B symbolize versions of the gene that code for large amounts of melanin, while little a and little b code for small amounts. Got it? Easy. Check this out. Take a look at the upper left. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B genes, and mom contributes capital A, capital B genes as well. Together, they will produce a child with capital A, capital A, capital B, and capital B. This is a kid with a lot of melanin, thus he will have very dark skin. Easy to see. Here's the bigger point, though. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B, and mom contributes little a and little b. Well, the child's skin will be middle brown shade, the combination of capital A, little a, and capital B, little b, which, by the way, represents a majority of the world's population. Not only that, but if each parent is capital A, little a, capital B, little b, the combinations that could be produced in their children could result in a very wide range of skin shades in just one generation. Ooh. So... Since Adam and Eve were the first people ever, it makes sense to conclude that God placed in them a combination of genes that could produce all different shades of skin we see. Those same combinations would be present in Noah and the seven other people who boarded the ark. And because God dispersed people at the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the population, thereby isolating gene pools in the different people groups. Over time, different cultures formed in different locations with certain features like skin shade becoming predominant. And here we are today. And since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we are all different shades of brown. One race, multiple people groups, just like the Bible teaches. Simplified for sure, but enough said. So the biblical view, Adam and Eve, sons and daughters in Genesis 5, 4, they had a whole bunch of kids. The idiomatic phrase there in Hebrews is like they had a troop, like a battalion of kids. 
They had reduced to Noah and his sons and their wives. And then the people of the Tower of Babel, different people groups, different languages. This is going to turn out. So I always ask this question. What color was Adam and Eve? Middle brown. Yeah, see? That wasn't hard, was it? What color was Adam and Eve? Yeah. What color was Adam and Eve? See, y'all don't say it with no conviction. Were the Eagles Super Bowl winners? Oh, you say that with conviction. Like, yeah, we the champs. Let's try it one more time. And I do this with the kids because they never get it right because they've been filled with propaganda. What color was Adam and Eve? Oh, there we go. Shades of skin color, lots, lots, little, little. The accommodations. If Adam and Eve only had little A's and B's, that's what their kids would look like. If they had only capital A's and B's, their kids would look like that. Obviously, that lacks genetic variation. However, since we can look around observationally see there is a large variety in the skin tone, the melanin, they had to be A, B, A, B, which of course produces the entire spectrum. Okay, so you had to have lots of genetic variation to get where we are today. And when they get separated at the Ziggurat of Babel, that's the Tower of Babel, certain genetic features become isolated. Hence, you have what you have today, which is why I told you in the very beginning, there's still only a 0.02% difference between any human being on the planet. I would encourage you, get the flash drive so you can get the rest of the stuff on fossils and what else we have that will equip you to defend what you believe. And we wanted to make sure that we had a few moments to do any questions, any answers, any comments. So now's your chance. I'm your black answer man. Throw it out there. Anyone? I see that hand. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> any questions? Surely you have at least a comment. Like, I didn't know that. That was new to me. That confirmed what I always thought anyway. Anyone? Anyone? I have a lot of college people back there. Y'all college or high school? Aren't you glad you came today? Because now you're equipped. All right? We got the mic going into the uh, congregational audience here. So anybody have any questions? Pastor Benson, you have a question or a comment? Right. Right. Comparing yourself to witness to different religious persuasions okay. in in the context of the hostility that exists uh, in our country today. Okay. That's a great question. Witnessing to a Muslim, to a Hindu, to a Buddhist, to an animist, it doesn't matter what ist or ism they are, there is a lot of hostility because we're in a postmodern era, okay, which means what they call modernity, which means there's a total rejection of the Judeo-Christian ethos, all right? And it's openly hostile. How do you do it? You, first of all, you do it with courage. God will make you bold in your witness if and you ask him, okay? Let me put it to you Philly-wise. 
don't be a punk when it comes to sharing your faith. Number one. Number two, you need to listen. You need to listen to what they have to say. You don't have to argue with anybody. In fact, say this with me. I will not argue with anybody. It's not productive. Okay, because you're not trying to win a debate. Your purpose is to win souls to the glory of God. So the more you need to listen to whatever it is they have to say. Number three, you need to become a student of the word of God. Because here's what Jesus did. Everybody that he shared himself with as to who he was, he listened to where they were, and then he applied the appropriate part of scripture about himself to the situation. Okay, that's Jimmy Johnson, in case you didn't get there. <laughs> to their situation, okay? Because it's more than just, I know the four spiritual laws, and I know the Romans wrote, that's good. But you got a whole Bible to use and to employ as your offensive weapon. So here's what you do. You listen to what they have to say. You do it with boldness. You do it with the attitude that we talked about earlier with humbleness and reverence, and then you apply the word of God. Listen, folks have been hostile. The cross has always been offense to the unregenerate heart of man, always. It's just more increased or exacerbated today. Don't let that intimidate you. In fact, it ought to just get you geared up. For those of you who like sports, you always hear somebody on the team or the coach or the manager say, hey, we're playing this top tier team, and we're getting up for the game, because they enjoy playing against top competition, right? If you're an athlete, you understand what I'm saying. You're like, yeah, I'm going against the best. Bring on the Golden State Warriors, you know. <laughs> Check my, okay? You get up for that. Hello? You get up in a hostile culture to share your faith. That ought to be pumping you up. Oh, not to be scaring you. Don't be scared. Serious. You become a student of the word. You apply it with boldness. You listen to what they got to say. Don't argue. And you share the simplistic truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for transformation. Amen. It is really just that simple. Because all the isms in the world all have one thing in common. They deny the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witnesses, Hinduism, Buddhism, it doesn't matter. None of them have what you have. None of them have your witness, your personal testimony. Okay? Don't shy away from using your personal testimony. Now watch this. And I'll make this clear because I see we're running close on time here. Listen to me carefully. People respect power. They need to see the power of the living God in your life. Amen. About what he's done and what he is doing transformationally. The deliverances, the miracles, the power of God. What they're going to say, I don't believe you. And you go like, well, what makes you say that? It's like, you know me to say you don't believe me? No, what you're saying is, is that you don't want to come out of darkness in the light. Okay? So always let people know about the power of God in your life. Because that affects people. And for those who are seeking after God, 
They're going to say, I want to know your God. Because I see what he is doing in your life transformationally. Amen? Let's give Reverend Faison a hearty round of applause for that powerful presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. I just want to worship God for a powerful month. 